Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Harry, Meghan, Monarchy and the media. Like every other commentator at the point at which this podcast is being recorded, we haven't actually seen the Netflix series about Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, but we have witnessed the ferocious howls of outrage from the tabloids who the Duke and Duchess of Sussex clearly have in their sights. Here's a taster from one of the trailers. It's really hard to look back on it now and go, what on earth happened? She's becoming a royal rock star. And then everything changed. You know, there's leaking, but there's also planting of stories. It's about hatred. It's about race. The pain and suffering of women marrying into this institution, this feeding frenzy. I was terrified. I didn't want history to repeat itself. I realized they're never going to protect you. No one knows the full truth. We know the full truth. That's a snippet of the trailer from Harry and Meghan on Netflix, which has been described by The Sun as Sussex, Lies and Videotape. Clever, but are they being entirely fair? We're going to hear shortly from freelance writer and royal commentator R.S. Locke and the comedian and journalist Ava Vidal. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content you can't read anywhere else. We don't have a millionaire backer. There's no huge media corporation behind us. We rely on ordinary readers and listeners like you to support our fearless independent journalism. You get more details on how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's our news-breaking website. Subscriptions cost from as little as £3 a month. So maybe you're thinking of a Christmas present for someone? Head over to bylinetimes.com and check out how to subscribe. R.S. Locke, Ava Vidal, welcome. R.S., I'm just keen to get your view from the United States on how we Brits are managing this whole media circus, I'm afraid to say, that that this has become. I think circus is accurate from our point of view. There's a lot of intrigue and excitement about what this docuseries might be based on the trailer from the U.S. side. But for almost a year now, there's been you know speculation and a lot of briefing from whether it be anonymous sources either in the industry or from the palace who claim to know what this is about and the fact that we've all seen basically two minutes of of a trailer between the teaser that they did last week and the one that came out uh, earlier this week and yet there's all of this conjecture as to what actually is in the docuseries so it just all feels a little bit overwrought one of the things that we know they're going to say, though, based on those trailers, is that stories have been planted in the newspapers, unkind stories, unpleasant stories. And the previous documentary that Meghan and Harry made for Netflix as well indicated that they felt that there had been people briefing against them from within the palace. Yes, and it's true. <laughs> so I think Harry and Meghan, they said what was true and what you now have is royal reporters who are the folks who are in contact and have the direct access to the palace who over the years have expressly stated in their articles that they are talking to palace sources, palace insiders, palace aides. 
And then even in a recent documentary that the BBC did uh, called The Princes in the Press, no less than four royal commentators said that the royal household, so the household that Prince Charles, as, as he was, Clarence House, Kensington Palace, which is where William and Kate, their household, and then also as the Sussexes were in Buckingham Palace at the time, that the palaces were briefing each other, briefing against each other, rather, and that Kensington Palace in particular was one of the ones who was doing it quite a bit. And Ava, on this side of the pond, we think back at the life of Princess Diana, Harry's mum, and the vicious stories that appeared about her in the tabloid press, and indeed the way in which she died being hounded by the paparazzi. This has got some pretty heavy echoes, I think. Yeah, definitely it has. It's like they haven't learned from history. It's just repeating itself. I think it's a real shame, and I just think the timing of everything is absolutely beautiful with the fact this series of The Crown's just come out, Harry's book's coming out next month, obviously this documentary's coming out, and also the whole Ngozi Fulani thing has also happened recently, involving some of the same characters. So it's all, yeah, a bit of a soap opera. And that, of course, was the story where a woman who is British-born was persistently asked by Lady Susan Hussey where she was from because she was wearing African headdress and Lady Susan couldn't seem to understand that somebody who was born in Britain might have a heritage that was somewhere else but would still say that they were born in Britain because that is where she is from. She wasn't wearing an African headdress, though. She was just wearing a headband around her uh, locks. And she was also wearing a leopard print dress, which is not African. We've been trying to tell people that since Scary Spice, but they don't seem to want to listen. (laughs) I think that that could have just been an opportunity to have a nice conversation about microaggressions. But of course, it just went wild. And, you know, she's left feeling unsafe for just speaking about her experiences. And I think people need to stop it now because she's a natural human being with a family, with feelings. It's just unnecessary. But it's this same hysteria that you see when Megan speaks out as a woman of colour. And I do think that is a factor in it. I'm sorry, but I do. I just think it's it's just horrible. It's horrible because she was the opportunity to modernise the monarchy in a way they didn't have an opportunity to do so before. And why didn't that work? It didn't work because of the racism she endured. It was very much, who does she think she is? We all saw the headlines straight out of Compton. She's privately educated. If she went to a school equivalent to what she went to in California, she would have gone to a public school here. She's a very educated woman. She's not from Compton. It's just so many attacks on this woman and her character. And now you're seeing the repercussions of it. When Kate and William go to places like the Caribbean, they are protested against wherever they go. I don't think William and Kate are a modern face of the monarchy. I think they're very much of the same. And I guess I would add, going back to the the issues with Lady Hussey and the incident that happened last week, Lady Susan Hussey was one of the advisors that the Queen had assigned to Meghan when she first was coming into the palace to help her with the transition to royal life. So imagine kind of after we've all seen this conversation that she had with Ngozi Polani, that this is someone who is being paired with a senior biracial royal 
in terms of helping her acclimate. And that's the type of mentality. And as you talked about it, Ava, kind of microaggressions that are coming from Lady Susan Hussey in terms of who do you think you are? Why are you here? And I feel like that that's a very pervasive type of mentality within the institution. And I know that Ngozi and others have called out this question around institutional racism and whether that is also part of the challenge that Megan faced. I think on the media side, one of the challenges was for the royal family, they're considered part of the national identity in in the face of the UK. And when you have a conservative media that is really focused on engendering divisiveness, especially targeting people of color, having Megan as a biracial woman, an American, and someone who is a feminist and has progressive values, having her as being part of the face of Britain, that's a conflict. When you think about the publications like the Daily Mail and the Sun and the treatment that they've given to everyone from migrants to Raheem Sterling to Diane Abbott, that same type of vitriol and kind of that same type of othering is the same playbook that they used with Megan. It bridged across the globe because of how high profile the royal family and Harry and Meghan as part of the institution are. And is that the perception generally, would you say, in the United States that the UK and the royal family in particular could not be welcoming to a person of colour? I don't think that was the perception initially. I think our perception, and I'll, I'll speak for myself, is because in America, the royal family is almost kind of treated as a elevated celebrity. They're carried in our entertainment news. As I was growing up, you know, I was seeing Princess Diana, Prince Harry, Prince William. They're in People magazine, Us Weekly, and Teen Pop magazine. That's, for the most part, how they are treated. In America, with our celebrities, it's mostly kind of positive coverage. Everybody is just interested in, in what they're doing. So you're not digging into the politics of it, if you will, and some of the cultural elements. So I think in terms of Princess Diana and the folks who are old enough or have closely followed her experience in the royal family, there is this sense of women who are outspoken, not being accepted and coming to harm within the royal family. So I think there's that perception within the U.S. But until this conversation, I don't know that there was as much of a discussion about the institutional racism, despite the fact that the royal family has a history of imperialism and colonialism in the, in the Commonwealth. For us as Americans, it's been a republic so long that we have some distance from that legacy. Is there an element as well, Ava, of class bias here? I remember when Kate Middleton herself became a member of the royal family. There were numerous references to her being, in inverted commas, a commoner. You know, she hadn't got royal blood, but she's willing to play the game. And the difference is, I think, that Meghan Markle, who is, by the the standards of these things, which are strange standards to my eyes, but by the standards of these things, she's also a commoner, but she won't play by the rules. And that's the difference. You can be accepted if you shut up, if you smile nicely, but if you want to have an opinion, if you want to stand out and be different, then you're in the wrong family. It's not just race with Meghan Markle. I think 
class, I don't even think it's so much that because, I mean, once someone comes in from another country, I don't think that, like I said, if she was here, she'd be a public school girl. I think that it was also the fact she was divorced. She is American. I think there was just, you know, people like Wallace Simpson's haunting, <laughs> haunting the royal family. I think obviously with Charles being able to remarry and marry Camilla as the heir to the throne, they couldn't really throw up a divorced person as that much of an excuse. But I think that all these things rolled into one with Meghan. And I do think that at the beginning, Meghan was playing the game. She was being fine. But I mean, how much of that are you supposed to tolerate? Every single time you open the newspaper, there's just lies about you. And it's just relentless. And after a little bit, she must have thought, well, you know what? I grew up in America. In America, I'm actually a star. I'm a millionaire in my own right. I don't actually have to live like this. And they chose to walk away and good for them. But I do think it was a number of issues that really wound people up about Meghan. And I'm not downplaying the race thing at all, because I think there was a lot of jealousy from a lot of English women towards Meghan. RS talked about the way in which the royals in the United States exist as a phenomenon of pop culture. And there's an extent to which that is true in the UK. But of course, here, the monarch is at the pinnacle of our constitution. King Charles is our head of state. I just wonder how it makes people of colour in this country feel that a person of colour could not, one way or another, find an accommodation within the family that is supposed to represent all of us. Well, that's exactly what the problem is. And for us, Megan, for most of us, people who look like me, Megan's white passing. She doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't look like me. She doesn't look like an Ngozi Fulani. She doesn't look like what the average second generation Caribbean or African woman would look like. So when you're seeing that and you're seeing that level of racism leveled at a woman like that, you do tend to think, what hope do you have? And I know a lot of black people in this country, people from marginalised communities and stuff, we feel like we have to defend Megan because right there we're seeing what would happen to us, probably even worse, if we were anywhere near this institution. I think that when it comes to Megan, there's also, you know, some people don't have any sympathy for Megan. They're like, you married into a racist institution, which is how the royal family is viewed by a lot of people who have family in the Commonwealth. But because of how she's been treated, people feel the need to go, well, hold on a second. Two things can exist at once. Yes, you married into this institution. Yes, you should have really known better. But at the end of the day, we're always, always, always going to defend people from racism. We defend Suella from racism, Pretty from racism. We defend Kemi Badenoch from racism. And those are like three of the most awful people out there in terms of what they actually do and what they stand for. But I think, you know, the way we feel is you just can't let any racism slide. None. I think it's interesting. I've definitely heard both sides of this in terms of Brits who feel like Meghan is a representation of not just what they would have experienced if it was them who had married into the royal family, but what they experience on a daily basis in the UK. And then also the counter of you should have known what you were getting into. And I heard that from not just people of color and not just black Brits, but broadly. And I think that the underlying question that no one really wants to ask there or say out loud is in the, the basis of you should have known what you were getting into is to say that the royal family is racist or has institutional racism inherent within the institution. 
And that's not something that people are willing to say out loud. They put it on Megan as if she was the catalyst for all of this, whereas really by saying she should have known, you're saying the royal family is racist. How can Megan not know this? I don't know who you're in touch with on this side of the pond, but people have been screaming about racism in the royal family for a very long time. People have been speaking about it in Commonwealth countries. I'm a second generation Caribbean. They've been speaking about it here with Prince Philip and his so-called gaffes. Princess Michael of Kent, when she went to America, was shouting at those people in the restaurant. The fact the Queen wouldn't sign up to the anti-discrimination bill. I mean, we have been talked about it. And if it's seen that we haven't spoken about it and we're putting it on Meghan, that just shows that our voices are not being heard. Agreed. And I think for me, so while she was in the royal family, or in terms of being a working royal and, and living in the UK, Meghan didn't speak directly about racism. If you look back, the comments and the defense about the racist abuse that Meghan was receiving all came from Prince Harry. And so I think part of this whole thing is by having Meghan in the royal family, even if she doesn't talk about it, just her presence makes race, it brings it forward. It brings that as a point of conversation in a way that the royal family and the royal reporters were able to get away with not talking about. Some of the articles and things that you cited, Ava, are recent. The Guardian reporting about the royal family not hiring clerical staff who were people of color until the late 60s. That just came out, as far as I know, within the last year. Sorry, that's not true. We've been talking about that. There have been Black people here who have taken the royal family to court before. So we have been speaking about it. The fact our voices are not amplified and people don't know that, that's a different thing. But we have been talking about Prince Philip and the really racist comments that he's been making for years. This is not a new thing, not at all. And I just think in terms of you saying that Meghan never spoke about it, agreed. Look at Ngozi Fulani. Black people in this country, we know what's going to happen to us. If we speak out loud about certain things, about certain institutions, we know we know what happens to us, and I'll leave it there because I know what's going to happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and I, I agree with you, Ava. On that, I agree that everyone knew that the risk that Ngozi Polani took in talking about her experience and talking about the abuse that she received, and that has been totally flipped in that people are defending Lady Susan Hussey and treating Ngozi as if she has done something wrong in bringing forward what happened and talking about her experience. One of the reasons why perhaps your voice hasn't been amplified, Ava, is the close relationship between the tabloid newspapers and the royals. And for many years, it seemed to me and to many other observers that the royals have felt that they've needed the tabloids to promote them and to defend them. And the tabloids have benefited from having a close relationship with the royals. So it's been a, a circle of mutual support. So beyond a certain point of acceptable criticism, should we say, essentially the tabloids have worked to uphold the royal family and the institution of the monarchy, and the monarchy has been complicit in upholding the popularity of the tabloids. They have been hand in glove for decades. Absolutely. I think Princess Diana was the biggest example of that. I definitely think that they work hand in hand, as they do with all celebrities, really. We saw 
in Max Clifford's day when he was talking about his book and he would say, okay, I manage this person. Hey, we've got a story about ex-Tory politician. We'll sit on it for a while. We're not going to say anything. And when something else comes out, we'll give you this story instead. So there's always been a game be played between tabloids and celebrities. And as RS has said, they are kind of celebrities in a way. They are the best known royal family in the entire world. So, yeah, they do play the celebrity game, definitely. But I personally would say the press and the tabloids are more in charge than the royal family actually are. I think the royal family need them more than they need the royal family, for sure. They haven't helped themselves with the trailers, though, have they? Because they have singled out in the trailer a couple of the tabloids who they're presumably going to have a strong go at in the series, The Sun and The Daily Mail. And I mentioned The Sun's witty headlines, Sussex Lies and Videotape. And they're pointing out that some of the crowd scenes that are being used to illustrate the way the paparazzi scrum around the royal family are actually taken from other situations, nothing to do with the royal family. There's a picture which suggests intrusion by the press when they have one of their children. But in fact, that photograph was taken with the couple's knowledge and permission and part of a a pooled photograph that was shared with media around the world. So this is ammunition to people who don't (laughs) like Meghan and Harry. They're going to find anything. At the end of the day... That's a fair criticism, though, isn't it? I mean, in fairness... No, what what I'm about to say is why I don't think it is. Because even if they did pose and agree, because they've always had like, okay, we'll give you this amount of time. Maybe you don't want to do that. They are forced into doing that. And it really doesn't matter if a picture is old or a picture is of a different situation. They are hounded by the press a lot. If I was famous, I'm not sure I would want to have to sit down on a day I don't feel like it and give an organised press thing. You saw it with Prince Charles a few years ago with Nicholas Witchell, where he said, oh, God, I hate these ghastly people. Maybe they just don't want to do it that day. So even if they've used a Paul Press picture, and it is only a short clip, I just think whatever they say, whatever they do, they're going to have people hounding them. They're going to be looking for criticisms of them. So they can say what they like. Just for sake of clarity, some of the footage used in the trailer, supposedly showing Harry surrounded by paparazzi, one was a picture of him with an old flame, a woman called Chelsea Davey, rather than with Meghan Markle. There's footage taken from a magistrate's court in Sussex in England, where the camera crews are actually filming Katie Price, who is a glamour model. And there's other footage which is of Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, leaving his New York apartment. So they're taking footage out of context and making out that it's about them. The other thing that we're doing, though, is taking the trailer out of context because we don't know how that footage is actually used in the broader docuseries. So I'll say that. But I'll agree with you to some extent. Using stock footage and stock photography, while it is industry practice, in this instance, when you know that you're going to be so highly scrutinized by the tabloid press, it is a little bit lazy. The thing I will say, though, is that the Sussexes, while they don't have the photographer scrums that were alive in Princess Diana's day and that chased 
Kate Middleton before her marriage, that they chased her through the streets. Part of what the document series at least is intended to show based on some of the voiceover is what happens to women who marry in the royal family. So it is very possible that some of that footage is intended to show what the environment is like, not just for Harry and Meghan, but more broadly. For Harry and Meghan specifically, they experience a different type of harassment that is more precise. It's photographer agencies sending helicopters to shoot video inside their house and them then having to sell the house and move out of it because now the location was publicly made available and there are pictures inside the house. It's another agency sending a drone camera over their backyard when they were in California and taking pictures of their son, Archie, when he's in his backyard in his house and then selling those. So it's not that the harassment doesn't exist. It has just changed in a more digital and online era. It's not like they had a video of the helicopter that was flying past their bedroom window to be able to include that in the footage. But the fact that Harry and Meghan have sued four press agencies and have sued the Daily Mail four times for defamation, copyright infringement, and are currently in lawsuits with the Sun and the Mirror for phone hacking and the Daily Mail for additional privacy violations. That's also part of why you're seeing the type of press scrutiny against the couple, because those lawsuits, some of which have already been decided and Harry and Meghan are undefeated in their lawsuits against the press. That's also an underlying factor in how they are covered. What do you think this will do for the royal family's popularity in the United States? Honestly, it depends on what's revealed. What I hope is that if we get some of the more detailed understanding of this collusion between the royal family and the press and understanding of how narratives and stories are created to protect some members of the royal family and to create villains of others, I hope Americans and people around the world treat the coverage of the family with a more discerning eye rather than believing everything that the British tabloids report as gospel. Ava, what do you think it'll do for the popularity of the royal family in the UK? I don't think it's going to destroy them at all, because as we always see, they'll pull to, you know, people will all of a sudden who've never really thought or cared about the royal family, who can't put their heating on and who can't feed their children, all of a sudden will think it's the best thing since sliced bread. I think that basically we, we are a bit of a nation of bootlickers, and we've got this whole tradition thing going on. Things happen in this country. We can't let them go. The Blitz in 1966. They just hang on to this stuff and they'll keep hanging on to it. So I think the people who don't like the royal family are never going to like the royal family. And the other people are going to pretty much stay even. Just how we are, really. I don't think it's going to do much. It's been great to hear from you both. Thank you so much for your time. That's Ava Vidal and rs lock i'm adrian goldberg this has been the byline times podcast before we go just a reminder to check out a new platform which you can find extra content from the byline times it's over at substack so head over to bylinesupplement.com bylinesupplement.com for additional content from your favorite independent news source really grateful to rs lock really grateful to ava grateful to you for listening as well and to harvey white for helping out with the production of this episode we'll see you all again soon thanks very much though for now cheers now bye-bye